The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Radio Network. In this first part of a two-part Pastoralia series, we'll be addressing Catholic parenting, probably the most critical part of Catholic marriage. As always, our guest is Father Stephen McKenna of St. Gertrude the Great Roman Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio. Father, thank you for being back with us. Thank you for having me, Joshua. Before we do anything else, Would you lead us in a prayer? Absolutely. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, who, being made subject to Mary and Joseph, didst consecrate domestic life by thine ineffable virtues, grant that we, with the assistance of both, may be taught by the example of thy holy family, and may attain to its everlasting fellowship, who livest and reignest, world without end. Amen. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father. Father, we're going to be dealing with probably the most difficult aspects of, of, of child-rearing, and that is the child-rearing itself. It's sort of both broadly and specifically... We're going to be talking about everything from what not to do. We know that there are modern ways of of approaching really everything. And we're going to find out what that way is with respect to to Catholic parenting and um, why that should not be the choice that one makes for how to raise children. We're going to be talking about things like nursing, the details on on how to make it so that it is both uh, appropriately done and at the same time, not used as a political statement, as, as, as some people tend to make it. We'll be talking about things like sleeping arrangements and other practical matters. Um, discipline, including corporal punishment, we're going to touch on, uh, simply because these are issues which, I think perhaps because they're so unpopular today, it, it tends to make it a little bit difficult to, to discuss, at least publicly. We'll also be discussing the spiritual duties that parents have towards their children and their upbringing. Uh, and the priorities that uh, should be made of of these types of duties. And perhaps most importantly, the spiritual duty that parents have in taking their children to to Mass. For instance, how how does one deal with with a crying child when one is trying to make one's Sunday obligation? Then we'll also be talking about things like chores and the little responsibilities that little children are given so that when they become bigger children, they can be handed off much more important responsibilities. Finally, we're going to be talking about everybody's bugaboo issue, uh, whether or not there should be a TV in the house at all, and if there is, 
what good is it, uh, what should one choose to protect children from, and what should be considered fair game for children to watch. Uh, I ask that uh, our listeners, if uh, they should have any questions or comments, now this is not a live show, but uh, we're always glad to get the comments, uh, especially perhaps while you're listening to the show, you have a thought, and instead of waiting to the end to give the email address, I want to let you know that you can reach uh, me or Father by emailing pastoralia at truerestoration.org. So if anything strikes you along the way and you want to pose a question or make a comment, by all means, send us an email. Father, if there is a time to start with what one should do in any particular topic, uh, in this case Catholic parenting, uh, there's always that point at which you have to cover what you should do. And I think perhaps there's no better place to do that than front-loaded here. And let's talk about the child-rearing theories of, of, of the world these days. Um, there, everybody seems to have uh, his own view of how children should be raised, and there is a whole industry of books and internet websites and seminars that uh, cater to Catholic parents, or really to any parents, uh, who have the money to put towards them. Uh, these seminars and books attempt to tell parents, uh, really, it's almost like a, like reading a recipe. You, if you do A, B, and C, this will be the result. Give me some of your thoughts, Father, on, on, on modern parenting, some of the ideas of it, some of the pitfalls of it. Well, gladly. And even before that, I just would like to say that I, I, I second Joshua's um, uh, his idea or his uh, his giving out of that e- email address. We always welcome those those comments or those questions towards us. But I think, in particular, with this topic, it may even raise more questions than 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 normal because everybody has a different experience in regards to you know one kid. One child may act in a certain way, and another one may act in a, in a different way, um, based on their temperaments or various various other things. And anytime parenting is involved, it can often raise questions and legitimate questions. And so we welcome all those those questions, uh, but we but we do also want to caution that uh, the principles that I'm going to lay down are the are the Catholic principles, and so therefore. Uh, I'm not here to, to. It's not really a debate. It's uh, in, in that sense. It's these are the things that, as good Catholics, we do to have good Catholic children and um, and to help them to save their souls. And always focusing on that as the most important aspect of of, of Catholic parenting. So, um, and I think that point is really where the modern world loses sight of what is is important in its approach towards parenting is that there is very little if any thought whatsoever from the modern world as to the soul of a child uh the soul the, uh, the what is good for them in a, in a spiritual realm and what is good for them on a whole we don't like the idea of thinking of doing the hard thing now in order to to shape them into being good adults later in the future, to put in that hard work and effort now uh, almost as an investment towards our children uh, in, in that regard. We'll invest in things like education or we'll invest in things um, that we'll, we think might give them a, a leg up in life, but we don't think of the, the hard work that we put into them in their early years as part of that investment. But really, that's when 
the formation starts. And so with uh, the modern parenting things uh, that are out there, there's there's so many of them. As many different books there are, uh, is basically as many different ideas as there are from the modern world uh, towards parenting. But they're all based around that idea of a modern psychology that uh, that really de- destroys any kind of idea of of a universal truth, or uh, and really looks after the feelings of a child, uh, you know, in uh, a here and now sense, and really looks after uh, m- more of a, sh- uh, a, a physical sheltering rather than uh, a, a slow preparation for for life as a, as a whole. And we, we have to recognize that that modern psychology uh, is. The same thing that has led us into the the crisis that we're in now in the church that has led us to where we are where after the Second Vatican Council where truth is a, to the to the Vatican two church is a relative thing and and uh, and we can't say that one way is a right way to do something and one way is a wrong way to do something and we can't say that uh, that to be to to correct somebody is is a good thing because. Uh, they're just acting according to their conscience, and we just have to let them do that. Those all, all those ideas are based in this modern psychology, and uh, it's important for us to realize that we can't separate the, our faith and the way we are, are living our lives as good Catholics from the way that we raise our children. We have to be consistent in that if we expect our children to adhere to the faith that we hold so dearly, and if we expect them to adhere to the morals that we hold so dearly along with that. Ours has to be consistent. We are traditional Catholics. We adhere to traditional morals. We are searching for something higher, that is, searching for God in our lives. And therefore, being traditionalists, we can't stop that at parenting and expect something of a total modern mentality to fit in with the way we approach our lives as as adults uh, because it's it's incongruous it doesn't fit in that regard it's uh, we have to look at parenting as uh, as as the greatest of duties uh, of parents in regards to their family, that's what they were married for: is to to have children and to basically. Parents are, are their their job is to have a little little saint factory, if you will. They're they're supposed to make more saints. They're supposed to to increase the the, the, the church of God and create uh, little young people who will eventually be the future of the church. And so today we're going to discuss exactly how to do that. And, you know, it's important to realize that just like with the practice of the Catholic religion, um, you know, these these traditional ideas and practices of, of parenting aren't, uh, aren't something created in recent times. These are something that have been tried and true for centuries upon centuries, uh, really for for all of uh, of humanity, if you will, that uh, that have been work, have been working for so long, that we are foolish to try to to change that and to re- rewrite that. But that's what the world wants us to to do. Is exactly that to 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 change that. It's also important to realize that 
and we'll touch more on it again, um, is that these new practices are oftentimes truly based on feelings and not the feelings of the kids, even though uh, people will sometimes trick themselves into believing that, but the, more so on the, the, the feelings of the parents. And, uh, you know, they don't, they feel like they're being too hard on their children at times, or they feel like they're going to be a little strange if they uh, are, are raised in uh, a traditional Catholic setting, or they feel that uh, they need to make them quote unquote normal in the eyes of society, but that's not what is going to save their soul. A good Catholic upbringing will save their soul, and uh, and and it is that that we have to look to before anything else is that uh, that idea of salvation. Father, one of the things you mentioned right at the beginning, and it took me a second of chewing on it to, to realize that there is, there's, there's obviously a very clear connection, as you pointed out, um, between the principles and the actions that are based on the principles. So if you're starting with, uh, with Catholic principles and you're using those as your blueprint for how you're going to raise your children, in the same way, you could use Catholic principles for how to raise a raise a church, or how to uh, you know, how to uh, really do anything, how to conduct business, how to farm a field, how to. As long as you can apply a Catholic principle, if you do apply it, then the end result of that application is a Catholic, whatever the action is. So, if we're replacing those Catholic principles for child rearing, which would lead to Catholic children uh, with worldly principles or a complete lack of, of, of any principles, something willy-nilly. Uh, it's, it happens to be Tuesday, so I do it this way, and on Wednesday I'll do it a different way. Um, if there are no principles applied, or if they're bad principles, or they're, they're erroneous principles, then parenting based on those principles will be just as worldly, will be just as problematic, will be just as erroneous. Um, so I think we need to we always need to keep 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 it in our in our minds that if we start from the Catholic building blocks, we're going to and we actually follow them. Mm-hmm. We're going to end up with Catholic results. Yes. Um, and yeah, we can't we can't necessarily say that it works every single time because ultimately you're dealing with people with free will in that way when they get older. But you're absolutely right. And to to, to borrow the the analogy that you used, it's. You know, like doing anything that is a step-by-step process, where uh, we'll use the farming one as an example. Uh, if I follow traditional farming principles, I I till the soil, I plant the seeds, I provide water and sun and uh, and and fertilizer and and keep uh, pests away and all of these things, and I cultivate it at the the best possible way, then I have a very good chance of crops growing in my field. It's not that I 100% of the time I'll have good crops because sometimes you know things just don't work out as we necessarily plan them to. God goes a drought. Right, if there's a drought or something then then it, you know then you not, might not have the best of crop years, but I will have a much greater chance of success in crops if I follow those 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 planting guidelines than if I were to just go on some sort of rocky soil and throw a bunch of seeds up in the air 
and walk away from it and say, well, you know, I don't want to force water or sunshine upon these seeds because I'll let the seeds, you know, decide if they want water or sunshine or not. And, you know, that I will, I will have very little chance of having crops grow up in a, in a mode like that. Whereas if I follow those traditional principles, then I should have a good harvest, barring any kind of, uh, of, uh, of, of, of unforeseen events. And the same thing goes for children. It's you know, If I follow these things and I follow them consistently, then chances are better than not that I will have good Catholic children who become good Catholic adults. But if I don't, uh, if my children become good Catholic adults... It's, I can hardly say it's anything because of what I've done for them. But even goes farther than that, Father. I mean, in, in, in looking at what good Catholic children turn into, they turn into good Catholic adults. Again, I mean, you're, you're in all likelihood going, you're tending in that direction. But it goes even beyond just simply ending up with good Catholic adults because this is what benefits society at large. Mm-hmm. That society at large... It creates a situation which allows for society to function the way it should properly. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you end up with children who are uh, ill-tempered or even ill-mannered, uh, irreligious uh, and problematic, you end up with a society that has those uh, those characteristics as a part of it. Mm-hmm. So in a, in a situation where uh, you have children who grow up to be... Um, adults with no sense of right or wrong and these children end up committing crimes it shouldn't be a surprise that where religion is least promoted or least followed you end up with children who become adults who become criminals let's say or who become people of a sort um, who demonstrate those irreligious tendencies I mean, frankly not a society i care to live in um, at least or in living in one, uh, one that I prefer to think of as being possible to change by the good upbringing of children. Yes, indeed. Yeah, that's exactly... We have to realize that the, the society uh, that we live in right now is really what we're seeing, that degradation of society. is not only uh, in part due to a degradation of of, of religion in the world, but also of degradation in regards to the uh, in regards to just the, we're seeing the fruits of the first wave of modern parenting, really, and it's and it's fruits that are you know that are really not pleasant fruits to have. There, the we have people who work less, who are lazier, who are greedier, who are more corrupt, who are uh, more selfish and don't deal well with any kind of adversity that comes their way in life. As every adult will know, there will be times where you have to face those those uh, those tough times and those that bit of adversity. But um, the, this modern wave of, of new just entering the workforce, people now are uh, you know, are ill-equipped to handle that, and that's you know an, uh, really a fruit of the, the modern way of parenting. Let's move into some practical applications of, of these Catholic principles, and, and I'm sure Father, you'll you'll enunciate whatever principles <laughs> we need to deal with the particular application. But, but in, in planning out this show. You had talked about nursing. Mm-hmm. Now, for those who 
uh, assistant mass at, at traditional chapels, oftentimes you will see mothers with children, uh, whether they're out in a, in a vestibule or in a hallway or standing outside the church or in, in a classroom or in a bathroom or wherever they happen to be, and the mother's feeding the child. I mean, this, this is a, a, obviously a, a natural thing, but it's not always thought of as being good that a mother is standing there nursing. Yeah. Well, I'll be the first one to tell you that nursing is a good thing. So I don't want mothers angry. I don't want angry mothers' letters on this. Nursing is a wonderful, wonderful thing. It is natural. It is the way God plans for a, a mother to, to feed their, their young infant child. And that's, that is something that is, is really important to realize, that this is something that is a wonderful, very, very good thing. Um, it, it provides many things that the child needs between, uh, you know, that initial bond with the mother and the nutrients that it needs to grow, to grow older and uh, to grow larger and to uh, and to stay healthy. And all of these things are, are much needed for the the child. Now, the question really is, where does the responsibilities of the mother lie in the that? That area of nursing, what what is good in in, in what is proper in, in approaching that uh, that aspect of, of of mothering, and what is what is not proper. And first, the first part of it, which I think is more obvious for most, is that it should be done in a very modest way. Obviously, this uh, we we want to to make sure that uh, that that. If possible, if, if it's possible that it's done in private, that's the, the, the most appropriate setting. But oftentimes, as any parent can know, um, you don't plan out your a baby's feeding schedule. <laughs> Babies eat when they're hungry, and that's and they let you know when they're hungry. And, and there's nothing you can do to really control that so much. So when a baby's hungry, we're not always afforded that uh, quiet living room at their own home type of uh, comfortable setting. But if they do have to, to, to feed in, in public, then there's very, very modest ways of doing so. Finding yourself a, a little nook in a room or a little area that's kind of a little away and, and having a, a nice cover that not only provides um, modesty but also uh, also a comfort level for for the for the child as well and um, and and can be done just in a very quiet as quietly and peacefully as possible and as as as, as privately as and modestly as possible and so you know like you had said what does that mean for 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 moms coming to church well once again just like anywhere else they they can't pick and choose the times that their that their babies are hungry so they have to do what is best now they i wouldn't say that they should be sitting in the front pew uh doing this but they can certainly sit in the back of church or uh, or or if they have to go to the cry room or vestibule as it may be then uh, then that's that's perfectly fine uh, and, but as long as they're they're properly covered and modest and and doing as much as possible to draw as little attention to themselves 
as possible. So the last pew in the church being converted to a giant rocker pew would be would be out of the question. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that the rockers are going to 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 come in any time. But uh, but you know, it's certainly that back area of the church. Um, well, I guess it's good for everybody to know that that back area, that that last pew, if you will, or uh, you know, is is good for both sides. That mothers and mothers and fathers that are taking care of young children should feel free to, to sit in those back pews, uh, knowing that there's a chance that they might have to go out with their children. Uh, which or and and people in the, the church. Uh, out of charity, should also try to leave those back pews, if possible, uh, for those very mothers and fathers with children. Because father to father, I, I always appreciate when someone sees a, you know, a grown family showing up and they're they're standing there at that last pew, and you know there there are five empty pews right in front. It's always I'm, we're always very grateful to you when you step out of the pew, smile, genuflect, and move up a few pews, because. You, we really want to be up where you can go, and um, you know we're in the back. We're in the back for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's um, so it really goes both ways in that regard, and uh, and like I said, the the you know if a baby gets hungry, it gets hungry, and there's there's no way to stop that. You know, there's no like you can't tell an infant. You know, hold on for another half an hour. We'll be okay. They're just going to cry until you do something about it. And so, uh, you know, mothers have to to take care of their children as as they know is the most proper way. And um, but it should be recognized that in that while we say on the one hand the positive side of that argument towards nursing that you know that it, it is a wonderful thing, it is a beautiful thing to be done, and it should be done very modestly and, and, and privately. We have to also look at the side of it, the negative side, if you will, the things that we need to avoid. You know, first and foremost, we have to avoid this, this, the, the world's mentality towards nursing. There's the one extreme that you know really nobody's listening all that much to now anyways is that you know that it's somewhat degrading to nurse of course it's not it's it's natural it's what a woman's body is made to do um and but also the other extreme and there i've seen um things that were like front page in the news talking about different people doing these things and couldn't believe that this is some sort of apparently some sort of movement that's going on where it's like the proud nursing mothers movement that they're out there in the public eye nursing in very public ways to uh, some sort do make some sort of political statement of we're here and we're proud to be be nursing we're almost it's almost a feminist type of 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 lauding that that uh, that moment of 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 nursing their children. It's in your face nursing, so to speak. Exactly. And it's, and it's there, uh, and it's not so much, uh, for the, any thoughts of the good of the child are completely out the window, no matter what they try to tell you. Rather, they're just simply looking to be proud of their own nursing capabilities, if you will, or nursing, uh, freedoms. And, uh, and there's zero charity for, for those around because they're, like you said, in your face, 
nursing uh, mothers that, um, that 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 should be totally uh, shunned and, and you know, abandoned. Uh, we should you know our women should should imitate Our Lady in all things, and Our Lady was always the model of humility in everything that she did. And I can't imagine Our Lady, you know, living in today's society, taking selfies and posting it on, on Twitter of herself nursing Our Lord. We know that it happened, that she did nurse Our Lord, obviously, as an infant, but... It was even a devotion to it. Exactly. Yeah, the, it's a Mexican... I think it's a it's Bolivian, Our Lady, Mexican Our Lady of the Milk and of Happy Delivery. It's Our Lady of La Leche. There's a, there's a very, a very, very old... Um, shrine, in, in, I believe it's in Florida, mm-hmm. um, with a devotion to our land. She's she's depicted nursing our nursing our Lord. Right. Um, you know, I mean, it, there, there's a. I mean, we know that Our Lady did it, and we can only we can only expect that Our Lady would have would have been as she is with so many things concerning modesty. All really all things. She would have done it in as modest a way as possible. Absolutely, a modest way and 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 a, and a humble way out of the out of the limelight, out of the spotlight. Simply taking that that intimate time with her and uh, her her son, our Lord, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, in that in that moment, and um, and so it's you know it's it's really um, recognizing that that imitation of Our Lady in that way, and that humility, and that modesty, and approaching it in that aspect that we can uh, that you can have a, a very healthy and proper and modest and Catholic. Uh, approach to to that that area of, of that issue of nursing. Um, one other area, which I don't understand really why uh, it seems to be an issue in this regard amongst traditional Catholics, but in, I've come across it too many times to ignore it, and it's something that definitely has to be uh, addressed. Now, I'm not here to put a uh, you know, an exact date as to when a mother should stop nursing, or when they've nursed for too long. I, you know, that is that is not something for me to do to to put an exact age to that. However, we should realize that there will come a time where you have to wean your children off of nursing and allow them to start taking that next step in their own lives, albeit that they may be very small little children and even considered babies by most people's standards in that regard. But as anything else, if you want to be natural with the nursing, then you have to follow the natural aspects of life in that regard, in that natural development stages of the child. When they start to be able to take food in another manner, it's time to start weaning them off of of of, the, of of nursing. It's time to start weaning them off of the milk and onto that that regular food that we all eat. That's, that the child's old enough to ask for. Exactly. Well, yeah, that's the that's the thing. It's my my in in almost a joking way, but but really in a serious way. If it, it, the, the perfect rule of thumb is if the child can ask for it, you've nursed for too long. But you, you know, really, when you start to feed them, you know, even though they're strained vegetables and, uh, you know, things that might be mushed up a bit to make them easier to, to digest for, for a child, um, that's, that's when you know that it's time for them to move on to a different type of food rather than to be nursing. And it's not that it has to be a cold turkey type of thing, but if you, you know, if you get to the point where they can ask, 
then you've you've crossed the Rubicon. So. Well, I, I know that some some women uh, continue to nurse their children for the purposes of of uh, sort of the natural protections that are in the milk. Um, you know, there, there's some. I know that there's some science to what is in the milk and how it protects the children or helps them to develop a, a proper immune system. Um, but I mean, as with all things, if, if one were to be able to nurse perpetually, mm-hmm. um, there, there seems as though there needs to be a reasonable point at which um, a child is, is, is no longer nursed. I mean, it, it, would, it would really be untoward to looking to uh, have a child of, you know, of, of double-digit years nursing and I'm sure there there are copious examples of it, mm-hmm. but um, but it's also to be to be known that yes, there are natural uh, you know biotic things that are that are in the milk that are that do build up a child's immune system. But a child's immune system is fairly well developed very very early on. In fact, they start to develop the immune system because they're sharing. Uh, the very blood of their their mother in the womb, and they and then that time period after uh, when they are nursing. Um, but it's you know there's you, you're not going to find uh, that children who are uh, overall you're not going to find that children who are uh, weaned off earlier than others of of the mother's milk that they overall are. You know, you're gonna. You can't say that overall these people are sickly now uh, due to that. And you can find any number of studies for any different types of uh, of ways of building up immune systems. I mean, they, uh, you know, they. I mean, kids find themselves in piles of germs every single day, and they constantly are building up antibodies just by exposure to normal everyday germs that surround them. Father, when a child is nursing, there tends to be the, the desire to have the child nearby. For a mother, it's, just, it's a matter of convenience. And, and that's, that's completely under, understandable. Uh, as a child gets a little bit older, the, there's a point at which a child's presence becomes uh, more noticeable than, uh, say, crying uh, during the course of the night because the baby is hungry uh, or for any other reason. And the child is is now uh, not helpless and doesn't need to be fed periodically or um, you know have other uh, servicings done. But what what are the what what should we be thinking when it comes to the, the sleeping arrangements for for children? I mean, I understand having a baby nearby when it's an infant. I also understand that um, having a twelve year old climb into a bed. Um, can be both uh, distressing, uh, alarming, and, and not a little bit annoying. Um, where, where's the line here? Well, in general and as a principle, children should, should sleep in their room and parents should sleep in their own room. That, that, that separate space, the, you know, there's this, uh, this idea that uh, I, I want to have this this child in my room, or sometimes even this modern idea of putting a, a baby into the and sleeping with the baby in the in the same bed even, and they there's there's this concept that oh it creates a stronger bond and uh, that it is uh, somehow healthy for the child that really all you all that is going on is the feeding of 
of the the emotions and the feelings of the parents in that situation. If the child's sleeping, they're sleeping. There's no bond. There's no real anything going on, and they need to realize that that they can sleep on their own. You know, they, they don't need you. You end up creating. Uh, the sort of like a gigantic version of the safety blanket all of a sudden that now if you you know if it, if the child always has their own room from the very beginning then there's no need for uh, starting to separate them off to their own room at some point what are you talking about father i mean in terms of i mean is it reasonable to have a child in a room to nurse it's a reasonable to have it's reasonable to have the child in the room to nurse uh, but, you know, really, there's, I mean, nursing and sleeping are two different activities altogether. So if a mother has a rocking chair in her bedroom, and the baby starts crying in the night, and she goes and gets the baby and brings her into the room and, and, and nurses in the rocking chair in the room because it's a comfortable place for her to be, she's half awake anyways, and, you know, she can sit in the rocking chair, fine. That's, there's no problem with that. But once the baby's ready to go back to sleep, and bring it back to its own place. Uh, we don't have to worry about and anybody who's um, that's you know, chances are that most of the people listening were not sleeping in their parents' room when they were even infants. And you, you know what? It's they, you turned out just fine. There's you know, I never ever had a crib in my parents' room from the day I came home from the hospital. I was in a different room. And yes, there was a monitor, and I, my parents could hear if I started crying and needed to take care of me for some reason. But uh, but I never was, I was never in their room. I had my own space. Or you know, some people with, with larger families, they might have a space with other children in it. But it's a, a child's room and a mother's room. And then especially in addition to the 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 unhealthy feeding of the feelings of the parents. And I think that's something that needs to be recognized, that that is an unhealthy feeding of, uh, of feelings, the giving in to a, a lower passion of, uh, of the feelings rather than a, than a true form of, uh, of acceptance of the role of parent to children that takes place when, that, when they desire that sleeping arrangement. But in addition to that, you know, those who have babies, or little, little kids that sleep in their beds, uh, you know, there's many times I've also read news articles about when a mother rolls over in the middle of the night and doesn't realize because she doesn't wake up that she rolls over onto her child and and suffocates them in her, her own bed, and you know nobody wants something like that to happen, of course. But but you know parents need their own space, and you know moms and dads, you guys work hard taking care of your children day and night, and you deserve a little bit of space to yourself, uh, and and uh, and also that's the that's the natural thing, and and we should also realize that. It, you don't have to worry about it if every little peep that your your child makes. Most parents who have more than one child realize that after you know number two or three comes along because you know number one kind of gets the special treatment because it's new thing and you're afraid to almost like break the child if you will because they're so little and tiny and it's a it's a big change of life and a, and a joy to the parents that come. Well, after a little bit of experience, they realize that everything will be. Okay, so parents, you know, if your child makes a little bit of cry when you try to put them to sleep or something like that, it's okay to let them 
cry a little bit, they'll fall asleep. And if they don't, if they really start crying a lot, then yeah, so you can go and take care of whatever their needs are. Maybe they're sick, maybe they're hungry, or whatever. But but um, but you know, if a child, when you lay them down, is crying for a little bit, it's okay to leave them for a few minutes to to kind of just you know work it out, if you will, cry it out and cry themselves to sleep. It's that's not it's not abusive. That's not evil in some sort of way. Um, sometimes that even especially when they're tired they become children become cranky and that's just going to happen sometimes Father I think that uh, one of the concerns with, with uh, in terms of those sleeping arrangements is that um, at least concerns sort of abstractly is that that's when the children first start controlling the parents um, <laughs> I mean I, I realize that you know, by maybe the first three to six months of being a new parent, you stop watching the baby to make sure the baby's still breathing or listening for the baby to still be breathing. And every little squeak is not the child choking to death on uh, on the, the blanket that the baby's swallowed up in. Um, you know, I think by you know, child uh, two, three, four, five, you, you've come to, to moderate some of those those, you know, understandably natural um, and novel uh, reactions to hearing a baby making a gurgling noise in the middle of the night. Um, or when the baby does stop crying, the, the reaction might not be, well, the baby's finally fallen asleep. It's that the baby has now passed out and something is wrong. So I think in a way, uh, parents can end up training themselves to have mistaken, understandably mistaken, but still mistaken notions of what's happening with a baby when the baby's going to sleep. I know that there's a, a countervailing view that it, it, it's a certain number of months before a baby actually can cry it out, but, um, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll leave, I'll leave the, uh, the listeners with little babies to, uh, to test that thesis uh, during their, their own evenings. We, we, we've, we've put the children in bedrooms and, and you father you, there's nothing I mean I understand large Catholic families uh, you know you might have six eight ten children easily mm-hmm. and um, you know unless you're living in a six eight ten bedroom house uh, your you, kids are sharing rooms right um, any thoughts on you know on, on, on family roommates <laughs> no family roommates are uh are something that obviously is necessity in most larger families' cases, and also something that is actually a good thing. Um, you know, as kids get a little older, obviously you want to certainly make sure that they're they're separated, boys and girls at, at least. Uh, in those, you know, in the infant years, that doesn't. You know, if you have a one-year-old and a and a newborn, obviously that doesn't matter at all. But uh, but you know, as they get a little older, and, and then you'd want to, to separate them, boys and girls, at least. But um, but at the same time, overall, it's it's not only is it uh, a necessity and a, and a fine thing to have, but it, it's also can it can be a good thing because in those little arrangements of, of children sharing rooms uh, they grow close with their 
their siblings a little more that they you know they 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 have them in their rooms they can grow a little closer to them and and uh, and be uh, you know they're going to spend time during the day playing with them obviously and so they they'll they'll learn to be a little closer in those times also in that regard it teaches charity early on because you're in the same room and you're sleeping together you're going to have to figure out a way to get along together over overall and it teaches uh, not only charity towards each other but it teaches responsibility to older children so if you have a 12 year old sleeping in the room and there's a and there's a 5 year old in the same room with that child uh, then they're going to learn how to help take care of the needs of the 5 year old and in that way learn responsibility for themselves and and to give a little bit of a of a, a hand and a break to the to the parents as well so uh so no there's there's no wrong there's no uh there's nothing wrong with kids sharing rooms and um you know it's you try to make it as comfortable as possible but uh, but each kid you know it, it's it's impossible to ask of everybody to have a, a giant mansion to fit their their large families it's you know yeah, parents do do enough to to take care of their needs of their their kids overall. The, you know, to ask them to have each their own room, you'll be building little hermitages out in the backyard before you know it. So uh, it's just too much. Let's let's say for for a moment, Father, that that one of the the little hermits has has now stepped out of line, <laughs> um, and we'll, we'll we're going to segue into into a topic which uh, is. It's a hot-button issue. It is a subject of considerable debate, even amongst traditional Catholics. Um, There seem to be several differing views on the issue of, not only on discipline generally, but on on corporal punishment specifically. Give us some background on... um, We were talking about Catholic principles on which to base our Catholic child-rearing. With, when it comes to discipline, especially the discipline of, of a corporal variety, what are the guiding principles here, Father? The, the, the first and foremost thing is to realize, well, first off, we can look no further than the scriptures for the greatest of, of sources for it, and is that you know the, 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 everybody knows the, the, the scriptural quote, spare the rod and, and spoil the child, essentially. Um, and it's true, it's, it's good guiding point, not that you have to beat your kids with sticks, but, um, or as, uh, you know, as, uh, Archbishop Sheen said, everything in my house is controlled by a switch except for the children. <laughs> so, right. so it's, uh, talking of a, of a Catholic family, but it's... Well, can we roll, let's, let's step back for one second, because I remember hearing that all the time, probably as a child, um, I don't know that it was being said to me. I hope it wasn't being said to me, but hearing spare the rod and spoil the child. And I, I think I had to actually peel it apart to understand what, what it means. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're sparing the rod, meaning we are withholding discipline. So we are, uh, we have a situation where there is clearly a need for discipline and we do not give them that necessary discipline. So we don't give necessary discipline when it's required. Yes. And then the second part, the spoiled child, is that that child will never learn uh, the right from wrong. They will never learn the the 
strict obedience to their parents. They will never learn the, um, the all the things that are uh, the that are necessary as to what they can do and what they can't do in life. They won't learn those hard learned lessons because you essentially by by going easy on them have failed to teach them adequately in that regard. So they will become spoiled. You know, they will be. Um, they will be, you will have children that will very well turn into monsters. Uh, so that's uh, not, uh, I don't mean that, that, you know, they're going to be going out there and being serial killers, obviously, but you're going to have a hard time keeping them in line on all of their spiritual goods, especially, and uh, their spiritual concerns, especially, and also some of their physical concerns, because it's just, they they are going to be, you spare discipline to them, they will be undisciplined in life. I think that's an important thing to realize. Uh, it's also important for parents to realize their role. You have to you have to accept this. Obviously, when we're talking about corporal punishment, we're we're now moving on from from babies. We are no longer talking of of infants here. Nobody's expecting you to go out and start beating your six months old you know baby with you know. Uh, in that regard, or just putting them in the corner or something like that, but you're because part part of the discipline, father, part of discipline is is understanding, mm-hmm. the, the associating the the result of the discipline. Correct. You know, whether you know if a, if a parent is has uh, spanked a child or uh, has used a, a switch or something, and I realize that that's that's a newsworthy a newsworthy uh, item that's been been uh, this has been publicly contentious. Based on the actions of, of of someone in the public spotlight, but uh, you, the child is supposed to, in in theory, the child is supposed to associate the mm-hmm. the the effect of the discipline, you know, the, that sensation of of a sting or uh, of of a, of a of a very moderate amount of pain, associate that with the evil done, the the the, the, the right. bad behavior. Okay, right, and so and it's important to realize, and this is um, this is something that. Many parents would not want to think of their children in this light, but it's absolutely true. It's absolutely certain to be true. And that is, and the public society certainly doesn't want to consider uh, our children in this light, but it's, but it's really true. If a child has not, especially before a child has reached the age of reason, if a child has not reached the age of reason, then they are very much the same as an animal, really. When you think about it, what separates us from the from the base animals, the beast animals of the world, and that is the use of reason. That's the the operation of our immortal soul that manifests itself in this world is the use of reason. And a child who has not the use of reason yet really can't ra- rationally come to the conclusion that they've done something wrong. They have to be taught to associate wrong with something bad. And, you know, something like a, a punishment in some sort of way is, an, is a bad that they want to avoid. So uh, a child starts drawing on the walls, and they're, say, four years old, and they draw on the wall, and then you take them and you uh, put them in the corner or you give them a spanking or something like that and tell them, no, you do not draw on the walls. They will learn that Drawing on the wall gets me spanked, or it gets me in the corner and I can't play. 
and they will not want to draw on the wall again afterwards. It's like a dog who doesn't ask to go out to, to do his business, and you slap him with the with the rolled up newspaper and 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 show him what he did wrong. They will eventually learn that I should, you know, make some sort of noise to go outside. Same thing with the, with the child. They can't reason to why the wall is different than a piece of paper that's on on the table. But he can learn through the association of I. Mom says I do a good, you know, drawing when I draw on the paper. Mom hits me with uh, with the back side of her hand on my bottom when I draw on the wall. Like okay. your father, you're not you're not suggesting that that, that little children who don't yet have uh, full capacity for reason are animals. But no, you just it just that the the I, I could I know I gave out the email address early in the show, and I I feel like the keyboards I can almost hear them clicking now. It's at that at the the development of in their in their development the stage at which their their reason because it's not developed for all practical purposes mm-hmm. they lack reason in the same way that Correct. an animal would lack reason. Correct, and just like anybody who's ever raised. Uh, an animal uh, of their own, like a dog or a horse or or a cow or something like that, and has tried to get them to be domesticated in a way. Uh, anybody who's, uh, I remember, I think distinctly upon you know ranchers that I uh, spent some time with out in, in in northern Idaho, where they <clears throat> not only raised cattle but they also uh, the kids would enter cattle uh, into a 4-H competition. And that cow would have to, you know, walk perfectly straight and do exactly what that kid was telling them to do. You know, you have a 1,200-pound animal on the leash held by a 70-pound, you know, 14-year-old girl. And that animal has to do what that girl tells them to do. And it only comes from, as they would call it, breaking the cow or breaking the will of the the cow even though it's not a strict sense a true will but breaking it so it learns to obey and children are very similar in that sense they need consistency they need discipline and they need correction and sometimes that comes in a way of 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 corporal punishment or sometimes that comes in a way of telling them no and 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 using a stern voice or or uh putting them in time out or or different things um that are there that we we do so that child learns from the earliest days of its life that it is meant to be obedient to their parents as the fourth commandment of you know is to to honor thy mother and father. It's something that God, you know, covets so closely that he places even above thou shalt not commit murder. And so it's, you know, it's so important that God created an entire commandment just to that obedience to parents of their uh, of children. And the only way that they can learn that is to learn what's right and what's wrong and to learn it um, consistently and with uh, with with no given wiggle room in that regard. Because a child who gets a if who does something ten times and each time is punished for it will not try to do it an eleventh time, or be very hesitant to do it at eleventh time anyways. Whereas a child who does something and gets in trouble eight times and gets away with it two times 
is going to be more willing to try to get away with it one more time because you'll have a twentieth time. Exactly, because they've got they they haven't had that consistency in in correction, and and it's important for parents to to remember that that's what they are. They're parents. They're your children. You are not their friends. Now, of course, you want to. You know, you can't just be there and be, you know, some sort of, you know, vicious dictator with no love in their heart. Obviously, uh, yeah, the uh, the uh, you can't be uh, Stalinistic or or, uh, or or something like that in in you know creating a, uh, an, an an atmosphere of just negative uh, reinforcement to their kids. But that has to be balanced out. You have to, you know, praise children when they do something good. Not overly praising them to puff them up with pride, but to let them know when they do something well that that's good. You know, that, you know, just like any parent, you know, potty training their, their child, they realize that, you know, a little sticker for goes a long way, uh, you know, in, in, in that process. Uh, or, and, uh, you know, same thing with something, you know, kid says, memorizes, uh, one of the prayers that he has to learn for, uh, you know, in in his life, then you know you should tell him that, that you're proud of him that you did that they did a good job that they memorized that prayer and that you're happy that they that they did so, and that you should love your children. You should show them affection and love when they are, uh, you know, on a daily basis. But and in doing so, having that those kids will realize that those corrections that you give them and even the corporal punishments that you give them, while they might not like it at the time, and that is the idea of corporal punishment or any kind of discipline, that they don't like it, um, they will know that it's not coming from a place of evil, it's coming from a place of love. They will instinctively know that because you show them that you love them in other areas of time and when they do wrong, you correct them because they have done wrong and for no other reason than they've done something wrong. And it's for the betterment of that child. Um, it's also um, important to realize that where kids do dis- uh, do um, divert from base animals is that they can learn more than just, especially once they get to the age of reason, they can learn more than just by instinct and and. Uh, stimulus reaction to things. So especially after they've reached the age of reason, parents should not pass off that opportunity to to have a, a, a time for instruction or time to, to teach them, that teachable moment, as, as it's often called. They should not pass off that teachable moment because, um, you know, it has to, at some point, it has to develop beyond just you did bad, you're punished, you did good, you're patted on the back, you know, then uh, it has to move on to what truly is right or wrong, why something is wrong. And so as kids get a little older, you know, that parents should not pass up those teachable moments and even, um, and realize that those, those times are very important and very precious. Their kids are going to make mistakes. They're going to do things that aren't right, but sometimes, um, it's a they can learn a valuable lesson from a little instruction from from a parent, and that's that's very very important um, as well. It's sort of like re- reverse engineering uh, a Catholic parenting. Mm-hmm. The, the child is subject to it as as an, an application, 
until the child reaches the age of, of reason. Then the child is, is actually told what the principles are on which you base that parenting in the first place. I suppose that that's always a, a good moment when the child starts to understand the principles and doesn't just look at uh, the reactions as not being, or your, is a parent's actions as not being connected to a principle. It right. doesn't seem really nilly. I know with, with, yes, with, when, when a kid thinks to themselves, I probably shouldn't do that because I don't think my parent would, my mom or dad would approve of that. And it's a moment say, every parent wants to have. Yes, exactly. When they start to think of something that wasn't already experienced before, then, then, and they reason correctly into, I don't think mom or dad would do that, or want me to do that. Then, then you know, you've laid down by those corrections early on. You've laid down in them that not only they're starting to pick up on the aspects of what is expected of them, but they're also. Um, They've also you realize that they've also learned um, that good habit of obedience to their parents. I think that's also to be understood by that by that giving of, of discipline to, to children when they're younger. They learn the habit to obey later on and want to and seek out to be to knowing that that is a good thing. They will seek it out in their lives more often than not, knowing that it's a wise and, and, and good thing to, to follow. Final thought, Father. Parents oftentimes find a moment where a child has been disobedient, a child has, has acted out, a child has done something uh, that warrants some form of discipline. And that moment where discipline is going to be given coincides with the child having done something that's embarrassed the parents terribly or... Uh, has insulted the parents directly, or uh, has done something to anger the parents. So now you have this this teaching moment, <laughs> but it's it's joined with sometimes a very righteous anger towards the child. Mm-hmm. What is the proper response to dealing with uh, not always having a cool head at the moment you need to take advantage of that teaching time? Right, and it's we have to realize that our discipline, if we are doing it out of love for our children and we're doing it for their betterment, then we have to realize that we need to be in control of our own emotions. Uh, We have to be disciplined if we expect to be able to properly discipline. That's uh, it's very, very important in that regard. If a parent is really about to lose their cool then uh, oftentimes they'll find themselves, they'll end up later on regretting that they that they acted immediately upon that because of the fact that, uh, that the message is lost, essentially, because all they know is dad is really, really angry. And, and because you've gone beyond what was appropriate because you gave into that own, your own, emotional part of it, your own anger, your own frustrations. Maybe it's the 15th kid that's done, 15th time someone's done something wrong in the day, but it might have been, you know, little Johnny's first offense on that day, but it's just the, that straw that broke the camel's back on a stressful day, and the parent, every parent's probably been there, there and back again, probably plenty of times, that uh, is, uh, that you just, you, you've had enough, and you you kind of snap at the at the child and 
perhaps go a little overboard. And then we, when we start to get to that point, it's not to say that every that you are going to be perfect and be able to prevent it all the time, but um, but we should strive to and uh, and look for a bit ability to, to to be in control of our own emotions when dealing with a frustrating situation because that's when we can instill some learning in that regard. We we have to realize that um, you know we don't want to explode on the kid because he did something wrong because his siblings did 10 things wrong before him and it just happens that he does something wrong and that's the last straw because maybe um, maybe their temperament is a little different. Some kids have really uh, you know stubborn personalities and they take a lot more heavy-handed uh, and discipline and some kids are very tender and all they need to know is that you know oftentimes need to know is that mom or dad is disappointed in them and they amend themselves right away and, and never do it again, you know. And we have to recognize that in our own children, and we can only do that when we have control of our emotions. And also recognize that kids will know the difference. They'll know when dad is or mom is just mad, and they'll know when they're disciplining us because we truly just done something wrong. And, um, and we want the second one to be what is true for them, uh, to, and for them to understand and, uh, you know, I oftentimes recommend to, to parents in those situations, and usually this comes when, you know, the kid's a little bit older, uh, that they get to that point, but not always, but, you know, don't, don't, uh, don't fear putting off the immediate punishment for something wrong in a child that's at least attained the age of reason and, you know, a little older or something like that. When they're really young, you have to do it right away because they'll forget about it in 10 seconds. But a kid that's a little older, past the age of reason, and, and able to think these things out, don't fear putting it off a little bit to take that, so you can take that deep breath, think about what you want to do, and then act upon it in a rational way. I, I think oftentimes to my own childhood, you know, how many times my, uh, my mom or my dad would just tell me, go to your room, and then I will think of a proper punishment for you. And... I knew, especially now looking back, but I knew then, too, that, you know, they're really angry, and they've sent me to my room, and they're going to come back with something that's appropriate, and it gives them that time to take that deep breath, to calm themselves down a little bit, and think, do I need to go really, you know, do I need to go in guns a-blazing because he did something really stupid this time, or do I need to try to go a little, you know, calm myself down and go, so I can go a little easier on him because it wasn't that bad, or, you know, he had some sort of justifying reason for what he did, or something like that, that, um, and it helps to mediate that, and you don't lose the effect of the punishment that's, that's given, um, in that regard. It's hard to take someone seriously when, you know, you have a, I, I think I, I read it described as, um, the weak man with the red face and the short tie, and he's screaming, and it's accomplishing absolutely nothing. And I guess you can train your children to ignore you, basically, right. uh, because it's hard to take someone who is uh, you have no idea what what's what's possessed this person. Right. Yeah. And you, and you, I think any of us can remember times as, as our in our own childhood when that happened to us, where where we we sit there and we're getting screamed at, and we think boy, you know, dad is, or mom is really, really angry. And 
uh, I think that they're just overreacting here, or uh, you know, I just wasn't that. I just I thought I was doing the right thing, but they're really angry, or uh, they obviously had a bad day, or hey, look at that vein bulging out on their forehead, because we'll start to focus on other things other than the words coming out of their mouth, because it's just noise at that point. We know that they're just angry, and what we've done is no longer as relevant as it was before, because you've already um, you've already lost your temper and uh, and and started to diminish your own effectiveness in that way. Lose the temper, lose the battle. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that Father is speaking abstractly, of course, about the childhood he was discussing. I have it on reasonably uh, good authority that Father had a, a purely angelic childhood. <laughs> And uh, I'll be looking for emails from his his parents when they get around to it. Uh, You are listening to Pastoralia on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm Joshua Guncher. I'm joined by Father Stephen McKenna. And today we've been discussing Catholic parenting. This is the first of two episodes uh, with uh, Father McKenna. And uh, we'll continue this in our next time. We want to remind you that Pastoralia is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. You can, of course, generally uh, readily obtain permission by writing to mail at truerestoration.org. Father, let's talk about... Let's let's, let's go out of the house a little bit. I realize that, that discipline really needs to be taken care of wherever you happen to be. Uh, nursing to, uh, you know, I, I know that, uh, that that children will will sleep really wherever they can find space, and they're tired. Let Let's move into uh, Catholic parenting as it pertains to spiritual duties of the parents. Uh, parents have that responsibility, not just to make sure their children are are disciplined for the sake of being disciplined, for the sake of, uh, of saying, hi, how are you, as opposed to uh, saying a naughty word or, or giving a, a kind of a, a look. There, there's a reason that the children are, are, are being disciplined. There's a reason that there's obedience expected. There's a reason that we want to make sure that it just as, as much as the, the mothers are, are modest about their nursing, that, that children are seen modestly attired. And these things aren't done for their own sakes. There's, there's a spiritual aspect to all of these things. Let's talk more specifically about the spiritual duties uh, of, of, of parents. Where does a parent begin? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the, I think the beginning part is the recognition of that and the grand order of things. And that is to realize that the spiritual duties of the parent, that is the most important. Like you said, the reason why we discipline or why we uh, have standards for our children or have responsibilities for them as they get a little older, um, you know, the reason for all of those things ultimately coincide with that, the concept of their spiritual duties, that is, the salvation of their soul, to put the spiritual duties and, the, and the, the building up of grace in that child's life as the highest priority above all else. You know, nobody here is going to, uh, to, to, 
to look down upon a proper and good education that a child is intelligent and smart. I mean, those things are important. Nobody's going to look down upon uh, proper manners and, and all of that. But a child could be the most well-behaved outwardly, the most uh, properly mannered, and the smartest person that you know, and go to hell. And if that's, um, you know, if that's what we end up with, then we failed. And I, you know, I say we because, you know, the duties of a priest oftentimes coincide and overlap with that of a parent. You know, it's, they call us father for a race, that we, we have care for souls, just like parents have care for souls as well. And so we have to realize that that spiritual duty is the most important part. And, um, and putting that above all else, because the flip side of it is, your kid might not be uh, terribly intelligent. He might be, you know, he might be rather simple. And he might not be um, terribly gifted in, in some sort of trade or, uh, or, or abilities in life and might go through the rest of his life um, working, you know, some general menial job, but they save their soul, then you have been the greatest of successes as a parent. And it's not to, once again, not de-emphasizing the importance of trying to make your, your child as good as they can be in all aspects, including education and, and, and their uh, ability to work in life and support themselves and all of that. But, um, but the soul is the most important. And that has to start... Parents have to make it a priority in their own lives and their own families because, first and foremost, kids follow example more than anything else. They are not going to maintain those good spiritual practices if it's just words coming from a parent's mouth. But if they see you getting down on your knees and praying, and they see you making the spiritual life an importance in your own life, then they will be more likely to follow. And you have to make sure that they are following up on their end of the duty. So you start young. You start the, at the, the very beginning, really, in that, that building up of uh, and spiritual, the spiritual duties. Uh, you start having your young children there with you during, say, like the family rosary. They might be three years old and they might not know all the prayers and not be able to say them yet, but you can teach them how to learn. You can teach them how to hold their hands reverently. You can teach them to fall along the beach. You can teach them to be quiet. And even though they might not know the prayers yet, they're building up a respect for time of prayer. They're realizing that this is an important and a sacred time because mom and dad make me be still, make me be quiet. And it's not always the easy task, obviously, especially with young children, but it's worthwhile that you start building up those habits very early on and you don't have to try to pull them away as hard. It's not as hard to pull them away from whatever play they're doing a few years later to get them to do their prayers rightly because they've already known from their earliest days that this is important, this is sacred time in the family. It also will help them to be able to maintain being still and quiet during during mass when they when they do that. And that 
that family atmosphere of prayer can't just be well we're we are uh, we're we're quiet and we're prayerful when the family prays, but it has to be the family prays every day. And that consistency, just like anything else, you know, a kid who does something wrong has to be consistently corrected upon that. A kid, if he's or a child, if he's supposed, if he's going to grow up in a life of grace, has to consistently exercise to gain grace. Has to learn how to do those things every single day, and it's important for everybody's soul in the family that they that they are praying daily. But but it's also important to realize, in addition to that, the building up of uh, of a consistent uh, scheduled prayer life for the for the family. Uh, you know, especially that that family rosary, to you know, to make sure that the kids have a couple morning prayers and a couple night prayers, and the family rosary together. Those things go so far; they they're so important in their daily lives um, that that really uh, it's it's a it's a beautiful thing to see. I remember one time um, before I was a priest. I remember one time. I was visiting a, a family, uh, and we had had a nice dinner together and everything like that. And um, the kids came up, and as it would be with sometimes when you have guests, you know the, the family was preparing this this big meal, and so mom was busy and occupied and and, um, and preparing the meal. Then the meal comes, and you have this really nice visit, and it gets later than people expect. And the kids the kids actually came up to the mom and dad and said you know we haven't done the family rosary yet today uh, are we going to do that sometime soon and so we all went myself included as the guests and went into the living room in front of the little shrine that they had and we prayed the, the rosary together and that kind of prompting on the child's part only comes from a family that does their prayers consistently every day and it was a beautiful and edifying thing to see in that regard and it doesn't just stop at the rosary it should be an entire liturgical life of the family to build up to realize that how how rich that the church is in every aspect of the thing of the things of the faith and especially through her liturgy to to bring them up learning the lives of the saints, the daily, the you know the daily lives of the saints, and uh, to bring them up hearing sermons, or bring them up uh, going as often as possible to church functions, and teaching boys how to serve mass as they get a little older, teaching and encouraging kids to to learn how to sing uh, and to possibly join the choir, or uh, to just sing general hymns in general, and uh, all these you know to teach them how to do little penances during. Uh, during Lent and, uh, and and fast on fast days and all of these things to make it more than just things that we do, but but to have a true spirit behind it. And then when we have that, when they know that they don't eat meat on Friday because not because mom and dad say we don't eat meat on Friday or the church says we don't eat meat on Friday, but we do it as a sacrifice to God, as a sacrifice to Jesus to help us to get to heaven. Um, because we all have to sacrifice our souls, and we offer little things up for the holy souls in purgatory. Because you know that there are special friends uh, that uh, that can help us by interceding before God, and they need our prayers, or they can you know unite their little sacrifices during Lent, and uh, you know, and 
do little things to, to do their part uh, in, in sacrificing for God in their little own little ways and to have meaning behind it and purpose behind it built around that liturgy those are the things that are going to make the spiritual life not something that they do but something that they truly live it's familiar I mean it's 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 not only familiar it's it's something that is important and you know listen man doesn't do things without a reason to do them it's just part of our nature you know i don't um i you know it's um i forget the name of the that greek god but he was destined for all eternity to to like try to roll the rock up the hill with no purpose of of getting it to the top um you know it's it's like that man doesn't just push a rock up a hill to have it roll down the other side to try to push it back up over the other side of the hill again without a reason for doing that. And so children will not maintain their prayers and not maintain their sacrifices and not maintain the practice of their faith in a lively and important way in their lives and in a strong way in their lives until they realize that they have reason for doing so. And they have examples of so many that have gone before them to heaven as saints by doing so. And that they can, they too can be like those saints. Maybe they don't have to do all the things that they did, but they can imitate their little virtues. You can point out little virtues here and there. Uh, that's why here at St. Gertrude's, it's so important that during the school year, we preach every single day to those kids. It's not that we're going to try to get them to go out and be like the, uh, you know, to be like uh, the North American martyrs and go, you know, running up to, to savage Indians and get themselves skinned alive and their tongues cut out and things. But we want them to realize that it's important that no matter if somebody makes fun of you or or picks on you because of your faith, you don't abandon your faith. It's so important that you have to be willing to stand up for, for your faith, stand up for, for God and and realize that it doesn't matter if someone uh, doesn't agree with you or, or picks on you because of it. It's, what matters is that you know that you never let God down by denying Him. Well, you, know, you need to learn those little virtues in those types of things. And so that whole liturgical life um, that can be fostered so much at home um, uh, by you know is, is so important for them and that's really gets them off on the right foot in building up that spiritual life for later on because once they leave the house when they're 18 years old you know the spiritual life doesn't stop there your duty's not their you know their duty's not done they have to grow in the spiritual life for the rest of their lives and now they're responsible for it on their own and it's only by building up that good practice of that spiritual life and throughout their whole lives uh, up to that point that you can have any hope that they continue on as adults. Another point, Father, we never we never know when God might call us and to, to get the foundation laid as, as early as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I said earlier that um, there's a, I guess a familiarity. You, you never forget you, you've never known what it's not like. You've never known what it's like not to have the rosary in your, in your hand or in your pocket at some point during the day. It would seem odd to you that you didn't. Um, I, I, I've read that in, in terms of, uh, kind of moments, I think, of, I think it had to do with moments of spiritual dryness where it's just duty that's getting you to say your prayers. 
But it's because you were so faithful to saying your prayers before when you weren't experiencing the spiritual dryness that you continue to say your prayers even when otherwise you might not say them. Mm-hmm. And God forbid something should happen. And you know, Sadly, we know, we know of situations like this. Parents can be taken at a moment's notice yes. unexpectedly. And there's oftentimes no telling what will happen to the children. Mm-hmm. Getting that foundation laid early um, I mean, in a manner, it gives a child who might find himself with worldling family or in uh, less than uh, less than Catholic cir- circumstances or surroundings would give that child a fighting chance, yeah. um, even if it were just say, "I know that I need to pray the Rosary right now," yeah. and that's it. And it's you know, it's and not only do we not know what when God will call us as as adults and be with people as as our dependence upon us, but likewise, you, our children don't know when God may call them too. And, uh, you know, a 17 year old kid is, is not exempt from, from dying. It's a, you know, sad reality. And if they're squared away and they have those good habits and they, and they're trying to live that life of grace and virtue and, um, they're trying to be faithful to the, to the faith in that way, God will make sure that they, that they have all they need to save their souls when they die, um, but if, you know, but if that only comes once again through that good practice of the faith in the home. Um, just, just, you know, just recently, a couple, three weeks ago, um, up in Minnesota, uh, some of the people in the mission there were very, very close with a 19-year-old boy that that died of some really strange, rare illness. And um, and it was really sad, but by all accounts, it seemed like he came from a good Catholic family that truly raised him to be a good practicing Catholic, and you know, by all outward appearances, seems to have died in, in a state of grace. But that only comes because the family worked so hard to ensure that he had those good practices all his life long, leading up to that point when it was his time to to go, and so. You know, I think that's a really great example for, for parents to see that, you know, you don't, we oftentimes think of that we'll outlive our children and that's just the normal course of things that goes and we all die when we're old and gray, but it's not, not always the case and we never know when it's not going to be that way. And so we want everybody to be ready at any moment's notice and including our children and especially our children, so... When we think, Father, of the chief spiritual duties that we have, there are those chief spiritual duties that we have in the home. Let's say the rosary or let's say prayers together, praying before and after meals, things like that. Celebration of feast days in the home. Uh, These are some of the the, the catechism chief duties of of parents towards their children and in bringing them up as, as, as Catholics. Moving out of the house for a moment uh, and, and into the church, we have no more uh, the church's uh, public act of worship, uh, the holy sacrifice of the mass, is probably the most regular, the most regular, and and in a in a manner probably the longest uh, consistent opportunity for parents to meet their spiritual responsibilities towards their children that parents would have during the course of a week. Mm -hmm. At a bare minimum, provided there's a a mass anywhere nearby, 
you're going to be there at least once a week. Um, and depending on where you are, the mass might be, uh, might be longer or shorter. Um, let's look at how parents should be raising their children to be good Catholics in the context of being at the church, and specifically in the context of children being with their parents at Mass. Well, you know, that's that idea of them being with their parents at Mass is that continuation of the practice of religion as a family. You know, that that's a really strong, important uh, bond there as a family that we're all working for that same goal. We, our love for each other is more than just a natural love. It's a supernatural love. We're all working and striving to to get each other to, to heaven, and and realizing that. And you know, we talked earlier about you know that desire of parents to bond with their their kids, and sometimes being inordinate in when something like nursing too long or not wanting to discipline. Um, but here's a situation where you really can bond with your child in, in helping them to grow in grace and and where that bond really is important. And so while they're especially while they're younger, it's important that you that they see not only that they attend mass, but they attend it alongside with their parents and they see them going to the sacraments, going to confession, going to Holy Communion, being reverent, making a proper Thanksgiving after Mass, making a proper preparation for Mass, not just showing up at the last possible second because it's, you know, um, you know, we all have days that uh, that you're running a little late or something like that, but, but you know, in a consistent way to, to realize it's not just something we just show up for and then leave from, but something that we are we are devoted to in that in that, that that attendance in mass and 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 realizing that that is so important for them and just like in their family rosary they have to be uh, attentive and, and and behaved at that mass they need to learn how to kneel and to kneel still they need to learn how to follow the rubrics they need to be quiet learn how to be quiet and and how to be prayerful and how to be prayerful in a way that I'm you know, I'm trying to, to to follow along with this Mass, whether it's watching what they're doing or listening or following along in a little book or, or you know, whatever it may be, that I'm, that I'm prayerful and attentive during that Mass um, because, it's, because it's that important. Now, you know, we run into some, to some interesting things with parents and children. First off, uh, attendance at Mass, you know, not all your kids, when you go to Mass, are going to be of an age where you have the, the luxury of, uh, you know, them being instantly, you know, 10 years old and fairly well-behaved at Mass. Uh, you're going to start off as as babies <laughs> going to Mass, and that's going to be a great hardship at times on, their, on the parents because, he, as we talked about a little bit at the beginning, you know, that... That back row is uh, is is theirs, and that's uh, that back row is that area where you're there because sometimes you're going to have to go in and out because perhaps the the small little baby might start crying, and you're going to have to take him out so he doesn't you know uh, distract everybody else. I mean, if they make a little bit of noise, you should know that people, generally speaking, a know that a baby makes noise and you can't do anything about it necessarily, and and b that uh, uh, you know the priest certainly. 
has become attuned to to basically kind of tuning that out in the most polite of terms, you know, that uh, that we we know that babies make noise and and it's just kind of background noise there. But if it's if they really start to make a fuss and they start to cry or you know make a lot of noise, then they have to go out. Uh, you have to take them out. Parents sometimes will stress out about that. They'll think, oh boy, I've been you know today was a bad day. I've been in and out of church ten times. I don't know, you know, what was going on there because I was so busy trying to, my, you know, my, my, my child was just, for some reason, the, the, the baby was uh, really fussy today and I couldn't do anything about it. And I was in and out ten times and I've had people come up to me and say either I didn't receive communion because I was so distracted doing that or I, I didn't feel like I should have received communion because, but what they have to realize is, you know, that's, that's their state in life. And God's given them that child. And by taking care of their child and doing their duty to, to care for their baby doesn't uh, doesn't mean just because you've been distracted, God knows that that's a sacrifice to you. I remember one, one, uh, one couple saying to me, they had, uh, they had the opportunity one time where um, their, uh, their, the kid's grandparents had taken the kids to... Uh, to um, uh, to some sort of you know family outing type of type of thing to uh, either a park or something like that. The, the grandparents had taken the kids, and so they went to to a daily mass, and they came up and said, "You don't know how wonderful it was to actually just be able to pray at mass because it was we don't ever get to do that." But they you know it, it's realizing that the parents realize that God knows that. They would love to be attending Mass and reading along in their missal and praying, but uh, but it's a sacrifice for them to go back and forth. And when we offer that sacrifice up, God loves sacrifice, and He accepts it as a wonderful, wonderful prayer, and uh, and we shouldn't feel bad about, about doing that duty. Now, as kids get a little older, and they still are fussing in church, and you know the, we have to realize it has to move at some point from taking them out of church to correcting them and getting them to not need to be taken out of church. And that starts, you know, fairly early on that you just have to realize, obviously not when they're babies still, but as they get a little older and they can start taking little bits of correction, you have to realize that it's important to teach the children that they need to behave in church and that they need to be quiet and they need to be still and then that this is a place of prayer, and that um, and to go out of the church is not some sort of you know that's not something that we're going to continue to do. And if I have to take you out, then that's a bad situation. And now I have to correct you. The, they need to learn that going out of the church is not getting what they want. You know, they want to get up. Nope, the kid doesn't want... The reason why they're misbehaving when they get a little older is because they don't want to kneel still anymore. They don't want to be quiet. They want to go run around and play. But they need to learn that that's, the, that's not the place or the time for doing that. There will be time for play and, and the, there's time for prayer. And we're at the prayer time now. And, uh, and so when you take them out of the church, you're essentially giving them what they want. But we don't... We don't want to create an atmosphere of that as they get older. We want them to realize that it's much better for me to stay still and kneel in the church than it is for whatever type of 
whatever I'm going to discover when my mom has to, or dad has to take me outside into the vestibule, you know, that we have that discipline that will come to them at that point will start to, to make them realize it's not worth the trip out to the foyer anymore because bad things happen in the foyer or bad things happen in the crying room. You know, dad gives me a reason to cry in the crying room. I remember one time when I was attending mass and we were in a, um, uh, you know, it was before I went to seminary, we were in a, in a, uh, uh, an office building and there's, you know, we're up on the fifth floor or something and there's an elevator there right next to the, uh, the room which we had mass in and there's a a child probably five or six years old and he was really acting up in church to the point that the dad had to take him out and he certainly was old enough to know that he shouldn't be acting up in church and he took him out of the room and walked over to the elevator and as they got into the elevator you just heard no, Daddy, no! And then you heard the bing, and the doors closed, and that was the last thing that you heard. But you knew whatever was going to happen in that elevator was not pleasant. And the kid came back, and he was perfectly behaved for the rest of Mass. You know, and that's that's what we need to to realize. Not that we should uh, uh, those those stories are are oftentimes comical and funny to the outsiders lo- looking in at them, but to realize that you know you're not a bad person for correcting your child for taking them outside of Mass if they know that they. If you're if you're teaching them that they should be behave in, in a sacred place, and uh, and so that that discipline doesn't end just because you've shown up to church, and the people who uh, are there understand that you know sometimes that this is a little, they understand that this is a learning time in that child's life, and they're glad that you're providing that learning, and you shouldn't um, be embarrassed by that or hesitant towards it. Just once again, just you know, try to do it as undistractingly as possible, or whatever that may be. In a way, Father, a child who is disobedient at Mass is shirking the responsibility that he's being trained to have by being there in the first place. Mm-hmm. So there are, there are the responsibilities on the spiritual end, uh, such as Mass attendance. That's probably the most obvious one. Right. Um, and certainly the most regular one. But there are other responsibilities a child is going to have as well. Not just spiritual ones, uh, purely natural ones. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, going from the, the, the church back to the house now, or even around the church. Um, you know, most, most churches rely on uh, the, the kindness of, of, of the parishioners, and, uh, and it's not just for filling the collection baskets. I know around here... Um, you see children cleaning, scrubbing the floor in the sanctuary and dusting and uh, helping to set up and take down various shrines. What does having this responsibility in the natural realm do for, for children in the long term? I mean, certainly we see that a child that needs to uh, make a Sunday obligation when he's old enough to make a Sunday obligation, it's beneficial for that child to be trained to do that Right. Before he needs to, where's the benefit in 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 these these types of natural responsibilities that one would get, um, say at home, say you know, talking about chores or uh, responsibilities where you take out the garbage and you're going to do the dishes. Besides making parents' lives perhaps slightly easier, <laughs> um, 
<laughs> What's where lies the benefit? Yeah. Uh, Besides that, my my parents it just reminded me of my what my parents always told me is that when, you know when they gave us things to do if we ever you know if we ever questioned why we had to do it they they always said why do you think we had you <laughs> so you could do these things <laughs> but, but uh, obviously they were joking in a way but uh, you know um, well, it's natural for for children to help their parents I mean I think in yes. the end. It, parents end up becoming. We live in a world where um, people get frightened by the fact that they don't have long-term care insurance. And I think to myself, 50 years ago, there was no such thing as long-term care insurance. Right. Why? Because you had family that took care of you. I realize there are certain situations that which make that impossible, but right, 90 percent of the time, 90 percent of the time, it's your your child is feeding you. Your, your daughter comes over from noon to two. And your son comes over from two to four, and there were people around, people taking care of, right. uh, taking care of their parents. I mean, but, you're, you're training them for that essentially. I mean, is in one aspect of this is to train them to take care of you after you've trained them uh, to take care of themselves. Right. Well, you know, it's not, but it's not just for geriatric care no, of us when we not. get older. But, but at the same time, you know, it's kind of like a nice side effect that can come from it. But, uh, but really, the, the 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 responsibilities and that idea of giving chores is. Uh, and, and something that we'll cover more so when we talk about uh, about raising teenagers and things is realizing that you know kids as they get older have to start to realize that life is not just play. You know, when they're two or three years old, they're going to be playing mostly all the time, and the most that they might have to do is you know pick up their toys or something like that. Uh, but as they get older, they need to start to realize that they're going to have work as when they become adults. And they need to be gradually become accustomed to that and and have less and less time for play as they get older and more and more time for work and responsibilities. And that builds up from those early days. And you can and you have to realize when you have a child, you are responsible for raising that child to be good and in every aspect of their life. And that includes um you know, if you will, being a good member of society and being a good, uh, responsible adult. And that starts young. You, everything, you, those good habits in life all start when the child is young. So you give them little chores, you give them little responsibilities, things that they have to do consistently, and they will not only learn what it means to obey, but they'll also learn what it means to work and they'll learn how to build up a good work ethic that'll carry them through their lives and you'll they'll learn up learn how to persevere when things are difficult they'll learn valuable skills i mean a parent should never um a parent should never pass up on an opportunity to teach their kids something that could be useful so if a dad is you know the lawnmower breaks and the dad's going knows that he can fix it. That he needs to, uh, uh, you know, change the pull cord on the on the lawnmower. Well, and he has a ten or twelve year old boy that lives at the house. What a perfect opportunity to teach him how to do that. Take him outside, show him how it works, take it apart, you know, show him step by step, and then have him get his hands dirty a little bit. Show him how to do it so he can do it later on when he has his own lawnmower and it breaks. 
or you know in the future when the lawnmower breaks and he can just fix it for you or you know you know teaching them how to garden so they that they know how to raise vegetables or or you know sewing and cooking whatever skills you know that they can be useful to them in their life parents should take the opportunity to teach them those when they have it but uh, but more importantly than just the learning aspect of it is is that discipline that goes along with it and the work ethic that work ethic that perseverance and things will carry over into so many things they need to learn that there's a time for play and a time for work and a time for prayer and all of those things have their proper place and time and we have to work at each one of them uh, as 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 much as possible that you know that when we do recreate we do take the time to to relax and you know to to rejuvenate ourselves so we can do those other things better so we can work better in our lives and so we can pray better um in our our times of of, of spiritual exercises and like you said that um that idea of um of those dry times you know the everybody's going to go through them but if they have that solid work ethic in their lives in every aspect of their lives they're going to be more willing to to give of themselves and to persevere in those tough times for prayer and those tough times where they don't want to do their duties all the time because they're tired or temptation is hard on them and they have to still resist that temptation well if they've been pampered and 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 uh, kind of babied their whole childhood, then they're going to have a much harder time resisting temptation when it comes because they're used to being, you know, kind of powdered and and all the niceties and always being told yes. But if they get used to having to sometimes work hard and sometimes having to um, to to not get their way and to and to have to sacrifice a little bit every now and again, then. Um, then they'll be more apt to be even able just to turn away from temptations because they'll be used to denying the simple base pleasures that they want. You can't really expect a child to to do his duty if he hasn't actually been taught his duty. Mm-hmm. And duty is not you know, it's not a card trick. I mean, it's something that yes. gets exercised over and over again. I mean, there's, again, there's a consistency. Yes, uh, and that's how that's how duty is learned. But like you said, Father, there's also that time for, for play. Yes. Um, there's time for recreation. I know that there, we're, we're recording the show, and I can see two screens without even turning my head. Everywhere you go, there's a screen. Um, in people's homes, in the workplace. You can't, you can't sit down, uh, you can't walk into, into a store without there being some screen uh, that's giving you all sorts of information or showing you a sports game or um, there's, you're, you're, you're pounded with, with information you're pounded with entertainment you're pounded over and over again and it comes in every, from every screen now strictly speaking I know that there's no problem with television as a medium I mean like books books themselves are you know there, there's, there's nothing wrong with, with the book as, as a thing per se but uh, it's what's in the book that can make make it something to be avoided. Same thing with the television. It's is as a medium. It's a perfectly useful tool. The same way a computer can be a perfectly useful tool, or it can be a uh, a highway to perdition. 
I think next to corporal punishment and, and, and modes of discipline, uh, television is probably the next most contentious uh, issue amongst traditional Catholics uh, in terms of do you have it? When do you watch it? Is it actually connected to anything? Um, you know, by that I mean, is it just simply a means of, of displaying a film that is bigger than a laptop screen or a computer screen somewhere else, um, or watching it, watching it on a phone? What are we to think of TV as something that is it can be a form of, and I think a, a perfectly uh, acceptable form of recreation. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, you know, that is a question that is really, um, like you said, a very a very touchy area, if you will, or people are going to have different looks upon it. But what we should know is 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 that TV is not a necessity. And I think we have to realize that, or uh, I know that that's, uh, you know, for the modern world, people, if you told them, you know, when when people ask me, oh, did you see what happened in such and such a, a game when I'm flying in a, in a plane or whatever? Did you, did you watch this game on this day or whatever it was? And I say, no, I, I didn't get a chance to because I don't have a TV. They look at me kind of like, you don't have... You, what do you do? You don't have a television? How do you live your life? And well, it's like, well, I mean, first off, you're looking at me. I'm clearly wearing a collar. I'm clearly a Catholic priest. You expect me to be sitting around watching the television all the time. And, you know, I think sadly with, with the Novus Ordo, they do expect you to be kind of sitting around and watching the television all the time. But, uh, but no, it's, it's, it's not a necessity. And, um, um, and it's not something that uh, is really in any way improving, if you will. In fact, you often find families that don't have a television have the most talented and well-adjusted and intelligent children that you'll meet. When uh, Bishop Sanborn and I had the opportunity to travel in Eastern Europe, we did a confirmation at uh, at this family's house. And the family had, oh, I think it was like 12 children or something like that in Austria. They were an Austrian family and and we showed up there, and children all very, very polite, extremely well behaved. The older children knew some English and could communicate with us well, even though you know Bishop Sanborn speaks some German. I, I, you know, really know very few words in German, and so you know, the uh, other than the, the niceties and the, the polite, polite things, uh, you know, I don't know very much German at all, and. Uh, and so the the older kids were able to communicate with us, but not only that, you could see that they were able to help in the cooking process for the meal that we had afterwards. And then they all came out uh, after the meal was done, and it was truly a, a once in a lifetime experience because they all come out and they're bearing all these musical instruments, and they put on a concert of traditional Austrian music. For His Excellency and myself, they're uh, playing various instruments, and not just playing them, but playing them well. You know the, you know, and that it was everybody that was over the age of reason. If this, you know, the the youngest one playing the instruments was seven years old, and she played 
she knew how to play two instruments. One of them was, uh, you know, like a classical guitar, which she was finger picking as she was she was playing these songs. And you know, the oldest one, who was seventeen, played nine instruments. And Bishop Sanborn kind of leans over to me and just goes, "Makes you feel really stupid, doesn't it?" <laughs> and it's and it's like, yeah, well, you know, yeah, I really kind of feel inadequate because I can't play all those instruments or anything like that, and uh, I can't play an an instrument. And it's and, uh, and Bishop Sanborn, after they're all kind of done, looked at the father and says, let, "Let me guess, you don't have a television in your house?" And he says, "No, no, I do not have a television in my house." And he said, "That's that's is that is the X factor that." Uh, a family that does not have a television, their kids will be... kids. People think that their kids need TV, but they don't need it. It's not a necessity. They, they will find... Kids can find any number of ways of entertaining themselves, uh, any myriad of ways of doing so. They did so for you know, thousands of years before the TV was invented, you know, 50 years or 60 years ago. Uh, and um, and so they will be perfectly happy and perfectly you know perfectly able to uh, to entertain themselves and do so in ways which are extremely um, productive and uh, and improving for them in their lives. Uh, now that being said, and I'm certainly a a, a, a proponent of. I'm, I'm certainly a supporter of families not having a uh, television because it is uh, it is such a source of oftentimes of uh, of temptation or whatever it may be uh, or just a simple numbing of their children you know oftentimes you just see kids they look like zombies staring blankly into a screen and not uh, paying attention to anything that's out there they're, they're playing a game or they're staring at a TV or computer, whatever it is, they're like zombies, completely detached from reality. Um, and and we have to avoid that. It's not, we cannot numb our children by television. Just because they're a little, they'll be quiet, doesn't mean that we're doing good for them by throwing them in front of a TV. Now, that being said, um, it's not to say that TV is per se absolutely evil, and uh, I think in some ways a moderation of it can be allowed but you know in those situations whether it's a tv or you know computer or something like that parents have to be so so vigilant um to to monitor everything that their kids take in and so first off that that vigilance on the on the um on the level of morality just caring to to screen everything that they watch so you you know you're going to let your kids watch a movie well, the parents should certainly watch that movie first and watch it with a very, very strict eye and and to make sure that there's there's nothing wrong with that movie or to to get one of those filters that that you can buy t- for uh, for for playing a movie that and, and where the filter takes out the, the the parts that you don't want them to see. You know, those those are things that um, you can do. And um, there's no real replacement for you actually. I've seen the movie before. Yes. I can vouch for there being nothing in it. Or if there were, say, well, this is questionable. I think if the oh, no. this were a 20-year-old, it'd be one thing. But for a 10-year-old, we're just going to skip this part. There's no substitute for you actually taking No, I mean by it. having a filter is that you could get a movie that perhaps is all right for a 15-year-old to watch, but you could take out the things that would make it 
inappropriate for a 10-year-old to watch, perhaps, that it's not really evil, those things, but you're just taking other things that maybe maybe it's a little more violent or something that you don't want them to, to see. And then you watching it with that filter on before you ever let your kids watch it. No, I'm not... I'm not replacing the parent with the filter. I'm saying the parent plus the filter is, uh, you know, it can be an, an added thing uh, in that way, and that's and then that can be something that's that's appropriate. Or uh, and then it should be recognized that those forms of entertainment, those electronic forms of entertainment, should never become a norm. They should not be the, the staple go-to thing. They should be viewed as a treat, you know, that it's, we don't get to watch TV every day. So when we do, as a family, we sit down and watch, you know, a movie or something like that. That's like a special thing for us as a family. It's a treat for us to do, to do something like that. It should not be a constant occurrence that we're, you know, every day we're spending hours in front of the television. No, if you are concerned about kids and their development, uh, as a, as a whole, like you mentioned very early on about, you know, certain, you know, biotic proponents to, to a mother's milk being good for the, the, the health and development of a child in, in the, the time of nursing. If we're concerned about, you know, building up an immune system for a child a little bit better by, by proper nursing schedule, then even more so, we should be worried about building them up as a human being, as a, as a whole, especially as a spiritual human being, but even just as a, on a natural level as a whole, and giving them that opportunity to de- develop their mind and their, and, and, and their bodies in a, in a way that, they're, that are active. You know, let them go out and physically play. Let them do things that are, that are good for their health, not just sitting on their keisters. You know, let them, let them use their imagination. Let them go out and, and play uh, and, you know, let them turn sticks and rocks into a game. Let them build a fort. Let them do something where they're using their imagination. That's going to, to help them to develop much more than any kind of, of, of electronic entertainment could ever ever give them. You know, that's, those are the things that are, are going to make them better as, as, as human beings and and it also it also allows them you know that we live in this electronic world you know when we numb our kids by that constant entertainment of of like you said the screen around um it also makes it harder for them to do their spiritual duties because if they don't have something physically before their eyes flashing before them then it's not real enough in their perspective, it's not something that's that's holding their attention enough to get them to do it. So, when it comes time to turn all that stuff off and go and kneel and do the rosary or go and do some spiritual reading or whatever it may be, it's so much harder if they're constantly surrounded by the the screen. Whereas if they are used to not having that screen, then you know they've just used their imagination to make up a game. Now they can use that same mind to focus on a mystery of the rosary or to focus on some sort of uh, spiritual reflection in their prayers. And it makes that, those spiritual duties much easier in that way. Uh, and so, um, you know, why we can't say that, you know, TV in and of itself 
is absolutely evil or a computer is in and of itself absolutely evil, um, we can say that A, that they are sources potentially of great um, temptations, and B, at the very least, they're sources of distraction. Occasions of distraction? Yes, exactly. And it's, you know, it's, you know, we, we, we end up becoming, you know, just that, distracted. And distracted not just from the things of life, but the things of the spiritual life. I remember, I think it was St. Clair, she had a, I think was she on her deathbed and she had a vision, she wanted to be at Mass, and, but, and then she actually saw the Mass um, <laughs> uh, as though she were there looking at the wall. She could see the, see what was happening at the altar. I think it was St. Clair, or you have... Uh, Pope St. Pius V during the Battle of Lepanto being able to see yes. the, the the victory of uh, of Christendom over over uh, over the Mohammedans. Um, I mean, here you have people effectively watching something on a screen almost. Yes. Um, what what was being watched? It was the mass, or was it was a Christian victory? Um, it, there's a painful, a sort of a bitter irony when you you see people. Um, whom you knew before a video system was installed in the house, and uh, the the time is now being spent playing baseball on a screen, or football on a screen, or a golfing game on a screen, and you know that you walk past a, a bag full of clubs in in that person's garage, and there was a football on the shelf, and there's a baseball with a glove, a baseball with a glove and a bat, uh, sitting right next to the golf clubs. Um, and there's a great big lawn that no one's using. Um, I think it, it's, it speaks to a sad situation, but I also think it speaks to one that is not, it's not incurable. Children aren't going to die if, uh, if these things uh, are taken away. I mean, they'll tell you that they are, but uh, in, in fact, like a baby crying, yes. the baby's not going to die from it. I think you know, another important thing of the entertainment factor that, that we see is, is that there's something about that screen that if you appear on that screen, then people will inherently hold you to be important and inherently look up to you as something that they aren't. And that's why we see kids today so much worshipping, basically, those athletes and worshipping almost those those movie stars in a way that they want to do the things that they do and, and emulate them in their lives and all of that is just really unhealthy because those people as a whole are not to be looked up to they're not your moral role models they're not your your beacons of of, of piety they are people who have instead of spending time you know building up their spiritual life, have spent, wasted their time, you know, developing their skills at some menial game or building up their, their, their lives of pretend on the, on the big screen. And, and no matter what it is, people will automatically think of you in that way if they see you on there. And a case in point was, just to show, and in this way it was a good thing, um, was that, um, I was at one of the missions, and the parents were saying that um, that my kids think you're famous, 
And I said, why do your kids think that I'm famous? Because I'm just, you know, lowly me, Father McKenna. And uh, why do your kids ever think that I'm famous? Well, because we have a computer in the house, and you were here one day, and two days later we saw you saying Mass on the website from St. Gertrude the Great. And they thought that you were famous because somehow you managed to be on the screen. And so, on the one hand, it's good because they're looking at at a Mass, they're watching the Mass, and if there are things that they should be looking up to, it's it's the examples of 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 the spiritual life and the the, the liturgy itself in the mass, and they should be looking up uh, to the clergy. And you know, we should always try to remember that, so we can try to live our lives as much a, as a model for for others as, as possible. You know, those are the things that they should be looking up to. But it showed in that with that five year old kid or whatever it was that just by the fact that I appeared on the screen means that I'm famous and and that's if you want your kids to follow in the footsteps of pious people then they should spend more time at church and see them before them you know performing the liturgy and the sacred functions of the church and or they should be tuning in on the mass cam and if you want your kids to worship some demigod that that can throw a baseball at 100 miles an hour then tune in to 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 the you know to your favorite baseball team. That's which which direction do you want your kids to go towards sanctity or towards or towards something that means nothing in the long run? Children don't get into heaven because they can throw a baseball quickly. No, I think that uh, now that we've covered we haven't covered stage but we've covered screen and and and, and now radio. Um, Father, we we uh, we appreciate. Your, your time tonight. We're closing out our first episode, and we realize that this has been um, a bit of a marathon for, for a Pastorelli episode, at least recently, um, considering that parents will spend probably on average about 18 years um, focused on, 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 on Catholic parenting. Um, I, we certainly appreciate your patience in covering those first nine years, let's say, or or so in in in, a, in about two hours. Father, do you have any final thoughts before we sign off? Uh, no, no. My only my only thoughts really are that um, that the the people realize that this is uh, you know obviously I'm talking to an audience and and so I'm no way uh, attacking parents personally in this uh, whatsoever. That uh, I think um, that uh, it's. The parents, oftentimes, I find that when you talk about parenting, they can have a knee-jerk reaction to get this defensive sometimes, especially if they see that the, you're saying something that they are not following along with. And I want parents to realize that I'm not attacking you personally, or I'm not trying to uh, to say that you're a bad parent or something like that. But what I do want you to, to understand that that these principles that I, I lay out and these these ideas, these basic guidelines, if you will, are are a tried and true, and b those that the Catholic Church has always lauded, and in all of our humility that we that we look at these things, 
for what they are in that regard and realize that what is our priorities and our priorities is to 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 get our our children to heaven and what better way to do so than than following the church's principles on on how to get them there and uh, and that um, and that if that requires us to to take a little look a little step back and step outside of our comfort zone and look at our own approach to our own lives and to that of the way we interact with our children and if there's areas where we need to make a change then we then we you know prayerfully consider that and and, and, and put it into practice i'm not uh you know I'm, nobody's claiming to be the, the perfect parent and nobody's claiming to be the perfect person here it's just that we all realize that we all are continually growing and striving to be to be better at our state in life each and every day and if we do that then we'll find ourselves well on the road towards towards saving our own souls and that of our children thank you father if you care to send us an email with questions or comments by all means do so by writing to us at pastoralia at truerestoration.org we'll be back with you next time for the second installment of our Catholic parenting program. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your Catholic faith, that you please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who helped make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond any type of material contribution, and of course, a kind note, the most important donation you can make to our work here is your prayer. Please think of having a Mass said, or even saying a rosary or a simple Hail Mary for our work the next time that you pray. For the restoration, my name is Joshua Gunter. May God bless you. was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.